Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Hello, everybody. Here we are at episode 10 of the Great Birth Rebellion. And today we are going to dive into research, but also a whole lot of other stuff about vaginal exams, including during labor, but also during pregnancy beat. Did you realize that women are being offered vaginal exams during pregnancy? Yeah, dude, I was the one that told you that. Ah, radio. So yeah, I'm very well aware of it. Okay, well, I retained the information that you shared with me and it stuck with with me and now I want to address it. So (laughs) here we are talking about vaginal examinations and I'm going to start right from the beginning at what is a vaginal examination? What are they looking for when they do them? So if somebody offers you a quick check, I'm doing the little speech marks now. Let's just do a quick check to see where you're up to, speech marks again. What they're trying to say is they would like to put two fingers inside your vagina to discover your cervix and what's happening around, behind and in front of your cervix while you usually while you're in labor but also we know that these can be offered to women during pregnancy and your cervix is part of your uterus so if I'm going to give you a visual you've got imagine a balloon and your cervix is the end part of the balloon that's you know the part that you tie together if you want the balloon to stay as a balloon I just wish this was being filmed because your hand movements are amazing. But for other people that really want to know what a cervix looks like, there is an incredible website called beautifulcervix.com and you it's people that have taken photos of their cervix. And we will put this website up in the mail out when I send a mail out every yes, week. Right. Mailing list, I'll make sure that link's there so people can go straight and find it. So that's what they're looking for. They're looking for your cervix and also a whole lot at how your cervix is relating to the rest of your pelvic bowl where and where your baby is during pregnancy looking for it with their fingers is what so it's actually it's not a visual thing at all it's purely tactile so they are touching and through touch assessing how long the cervix is how open the cervix is where the baby's head is in relation to your pelvis so is it at this um you know at the entrance to the pelvis is it lower in the middle part or right down low is your cervix facing the back or the front there's lots of different things that they are feeling for so yes that's just that's what we're doing well that's what your practitioner would be doing if they offer you a vaginal exam during pregnancy your cervix is actually what we call long and closed should be long and closed and can be anywhere from about three to seven centimeters and they will report on the length of your cervix during, usually during ultrasounds is when they can determine the length of your cervix. And it's held together muscularly and like will hold itself shut through your entire pregnancy. That's the ideal. And in your cervix is where that mucus plug sits. Like if you have a show towards the end of your pregnancy and your mucus plug comes out, that's where it's come from, from the cervix. You think of it like a, a ring. So it's like a Donut. cylinder. Yeah. I really encourage you to feel your cervix. If you're greater than 36 weeks pregnant or you're not pregnant, and you've never felt your cervix, now is the time to do it. I mean, if you're driving and listening to this, maybe right now isn't the time to do it. I have felt cervixes. I've had the privilege of feeling cervix for a very long time in my lifetime, but I've only recently started feeling cervix outside of pregnancy because I do this internal release work postpartum. And uh, cervixes are just magic. Like they're always like, you know, you'll be in the pelvic bowl and then they'll be like, hi, I'm here. Like, and you'll be like, oh, what's that? Oh, it's cervix because it's so, it feels so different. Like it's such a, it's, it's hard and knobbly and, and bigger. And it feels very different to anything else in the pelvic bowl. So if you've never felt your cervix do that, and there's a really cool chick on Instagram called cervical wellness, and she's, I've listened to her in a few podcasts now. Um, and she talks a lot about the cervix and our connection to cervix. And good luck to you if you're 36 weeks and you can reach your cervix. 
I think sideline. that would be quite a feat. <laughs> and you're laying on your side, coming from the back. It depends where it sits. If you predominantly spend a lot of time standing and your cervix mostly faces the back, yeah, they can be really tricky to find. I'll never forget, and this really ties into vaginal examinations. I think I feel like I may have told this story before. I forget where I've told my stories. I did this when I was a new grad. I did a vaginal examination and I was like, she's fully dilated, but she didn't seem fully dilated. She wasn't her labor, you know, nothing about the situation told me that she was fully dilated, but my fingers were telling me she was fully dilated. And I was like, I'm just not sure. So I got the registrar. So person who should know what they're doing basically came in to check and they're like, yeah, she's fully dilated. And I was like, this just isn't making sense. So we're like, okay, fully dilated. Great. Have a baby, push a baby out. And then like a really senior midwife came in like an hour later and was like, not you idiots, but basically you idiots. We hadn't, what we were feeling was the head through a very thin uterine wall and the cervix was all the way back and it was long and closed, which was exactly what the picture was telling us. And so that I'm not like that poor woman. I just want to be able to contact her and say, I'm so sorry for what happened in your labor. But yeah, this woman's cervix was really far behind. And so what Mel's saying is often they're quite posterior, which means towards the back. And so when we go into the, when we're allowed into your vagina and we find the cervix, sometimes we, we actually like walk our fingers all the way back to try and find it. And they can be really, really tricky. But I mean, it depends. If you know your body and it depends where it's sitting, so you might find it, you might not. But good point, you might not find it. But laying on your side with your hands around near your bottom will be the easiest place to locate it. And the only reason I say that is that I was a midwife for four years before I had my first baby. And for four years, I've been talking to women about perineal massage and when to do it. And then I got to the point in my pregnancy where I'm like, right, I'm going to start the perineal massage. Uh, Went to try and get to my perineum and realized that I had this huge belly in front of me and I can't even reach that part of my body anymore. And I felt like the biggest idiot. So I'm just wondering, I would like to hear from you if you have the capacity and the flexibility to find your cervix at 36 weeks, I want to give you a trophy. Because there are ways to to be able to get into the pelvic bowl easier. Laying on your side in the bath with one leg up, uh-huh. easier. Standing with one leg up on the side of the bath for perineal massage, squ- like supported squat, like so you sit on something and squat down. But sideline is really easy, much easier too, coming from the back. But it, <laughs> oh, we're getting off track again. We're Let's off track. go back. I had, I said so to be cervix is like a cylinder, a cylinder shape at the end of your uterus, right? Yeah. Think so of it like of that. And yeah. so it's round mm-hmm. and and firm and it's meant to be because it's holding our babies in. Mm-hmm. However, if we've had a baby before, it is also normal for it to sit a little bit open, for it to be a little bit shorter than it was first time round. The cervix know. is magical. It's beautiful. It's divine. The cervix is coming all different types of lengths, firmness. And so, but typically long and closed is where they're meant to be in pregnancy or a little bit shorter and a little bit open if you've had babies before. At eight, at time, different times in your cycle, in your menstrual cycle, your cervix can be positioned differently as well. There is so much in that happens in this space that we know nothing about because we're not connected to our pelvic bowls. And then we get pregnant and someone wants to touch it and they're telling us about our cervix for the first time. Like for most people, the first time they'll know about their cervix is either a pap smear or in pregnancy. And people are touching parts of your your body that you haven't touched so touch it so this is what when when you're offered a vaginal exam or what they call a ve or we're just going to check where you're up to or we want to check your dilation they're talking about two fingers into your vagina usually with a sterile glove and some lubricant and then they will try and find your cervix my next question i have to add in here for those people whose cervix is more towards your back it can be difficult to feel so if i was ever to do a vaginal examination on a pregnant person because i did do them i would do stretch and sweeps if people wanted them i would never 
never, ever, ever tell a woman to put her fists underneath her sacrum. But that is what a lot of people do. And it's what I was taught to do until I had this incredible midwife one day that said that is incredibly vulnerable and it hurts and it's not comfortable. Use a towel. So if you are a care provider listening to this and you get women to stick their fists under their sacrums, please get ready first. So if I was to do a vaginal examination on you, I would actually get the towel first, pop it under your hips and help that helps to tilt the pelvis, which brings the cervix. It, it makes the cervix easy to find, basically. If you are pregnant and you're you have consented with informa- with good information and it's a full body yes to have that vaginal examination, ask to put a towel underneath your hips first. And probably more comfortable VE, more comfortable vaginal. Oh, it's so much more comfortable. And the other thing that's really important too that I always do is let the knees drop. So to have a vaginal examination, you will more likely than not be on your back. So you'll be asked to lay on your back with your feet together, your knees open and wide. And so we If you think about it, if the body is tense, then there is tension, then there is more likelihood to have pain. So the softer your body can be, the better. Um, I will always put things underneath people's knees as well. So typically one leg will be resting on me because I will sit on the bed next to the person. And so one of their legs, if they're comfortable with that, will rest on me. The other leg, I make sure there are pillows, blankets, towels, a partner, whatever I can find to rest. So getting you, your, you comfortable is like the first step in vaginal examination safety. And so the idea would so be so that all of your muscles and body can completely relax and sink so you're not trying to hold parts of your body up. And yeah. Tense, yes, right? yes, because if yeah. you're holding parts of your body up, there's more tension. Here's the thing about vaginas. They are not tiny. They're not tubes. There is, they can expand as big as our pelvis and take the whole shape of our pelvis. They are just like any other body part in the fact that they shouldn't hurt. I said not to say they shouldn't hurt. They won't hurt if they feel safe. So if there isn't safety, if there is tension, just like our necks will hurt, pain is a message. So what I'm talking about is pathophysiological pain, which is what people can feel around vaginal examinations. Here's the thing. Our pelvic bowl is an incredible, incredibly sacred space that most of us are disconnected from. And so vaginas are super intelligent and clever. And if they don't feel safe, they will say, go away, don't come in. And the way they say that is to close up. And the way your body will often say that is you trying to wiggle away from it, right? So if you're a care provider doing a vaginal examination and a person is trying to climb their way up the up the bed, their mouth may have not said no, but their body is saying no to that procedure. Vaginas, a vaginal examination, we often say, people say, oh, it shouldn't be painful to someone experiencing pain. Well, if someone's experiencing pain through a vaginal examination, it's because they don't feel safe and or comfortable. And what happens with vaginal exams, and this seems to be the thing that happens with obstetric violence, is that proper consent isn't sought. Or consent was sought and the woman agreed, but then at some point asked the practitioner to stop or the practitioner did more in that procedure than the woman consented to. Like if they put their fingers in your vagina, discover that you're nine centimetres or there's what we call an anterior lip of the cervix and they discover that and decide on their own accord that they're going to push your cervix away or around or they decide to break your waters while they're in there, or they decide to leave their fingers in there while you have a contraction, even though you've asked them to please take them out, or they decide to do some kind of vaginal massage, which I've also seen during a, during a vaginal exam that's not related to trying to find out what your cervix is doing or where the baby's head is or any kind of clinical information, but some kind of massage. And so it's an extension of what the woman originally consented to, or there's actually no consent process. And in certainly in my research that I did on birth outside the system, where women reported choosing birth outside the system after traumatic experiences, there's stories of women being held down so vaginal exams could be attended and not being listened to when they've asked for them to stop if they're painful. And so women... Some people get really angry when we talk about obstetric violence because they're like, no, all these people are there for the women's and babies' safety. And actually it doesn't matter because a woman could choose to die herself or for her baby to die 
and decline intervention. And if intervention is given, it is defined as assault. So it doesn't matter what the intention is. So we have um, human rights as patients in a hospital care setting or under someone's care, and that is one of them, to consent to the procedure. I think the issue here is as a culture and a society, we don't really understand consent. Consent is fluid. It's ever it's continuously changing. And I think in our system, it's like we're taught, get the consent right, we've got it, so it's fine. But as Mel said, the consent can change and that can be, I've, I've yes, you've done the vaginal examination and now I would like it to stop. I don't consent to it continuing. Also, I think for us, if for those of us having the vaginal examinations, um, often our good girl syndrome plays out where we're like, well, I've said yes to it. So now I have to endure what it is. And I think a lot of that can can come because we don't actually understand what's going to happen to us. So the extra add-ons that get done, we think, oh, well, I must have agreed to that because that must be what they're doing. Um, and it's only if you have all the information to know that you haven't actually consented to that, that you know what's happening. And, and so you can say before a vaginal examination, what is your plan to do? What are you planning to do once your fingers are inside my vagina? Well, if we have a look at then, we've looked at what vaginal exams are and Let's look at some of the reasons they would be done. So what the policies are around this in a hospital setting. So we'll start with a hospital setting. And obviously, I'm going to give you some information about what I do personally around journal exams as a private midwife in a home setting. But there is a pretty universal, and again, I'm going to get emails about this. There's a pretty universal practice of when a woman arrives to hospital, they get a vaginal exam if they're in an inf, they're getting contractions of some kind and they're full term because that's the other thing you don't want to be doing vaginal exams on somebody who's in labor preterm either so anyway that's a whole other thing turning up to hospital you've got contractions and you think it's time to go when you turn up whether or not you've got risk factors for anything or whether or not you're a well healthy pregnant person they want to see where you're up to And their only real objective way that the hospital sees possible to assess you is to do a vaginal exam to detect your cervix. Then if you are in what we would call, and again, we're going to do a whole episode on stages of labor and active labor, but anyway, all that kind of stuff. But I'm talking in medical defined terms here. If you're past four or five centimetres, that will probably shuffle you on through to a birth room and consider you in labour. I'm doing speech marks. And then they'll want to do a routine vaginal exam roughly every four hours. Some places do them more frequently than that. Some have a much more flexible policy, but generally four hourly routine vaginal exams is what they'll do. And that is not at all in any way or in any research ever been supported to improve outcomes for women or be an accurate diagnosis of issues in labour. What they also know is that vaginal exams are only ever accurate. So the the research varies a little bit, but 48 to 56% of the time, they're accurate. So only half of the vaginal exams that are going to be done at any one time are actually deemed to be accurate. (laughs) So it's a flawed assessment system. But also Ina Mae Gaskin talks about the cervix as being a sphincter, much Mm. like uh, Mm. your rectum would be Mm. to open Mm. and close at will. So in stressful Mm. situations, People mm. get constipated because they can't poo and their sphincters won't relax. Um, mm. So Ina Mae Gaskin talks about cervixes being able to open and close again. But I think we don't, I think it's a really under-researched area, the activity of cervixes, which is kind of fine because although the policies in hospitals are four-hourly vaginal exams, I can count on one hand the number of vaginal exams I do in an entire year. And usually they're not necessarily clinically needed, but for some under some circumstances, women want them. I don't do them routinely as any kind of, they don't hold weight as far as I'm concerned, unless you you need more information for some reason. So what I'm saying is routine vaginal exams done every four hours or every two hours, whatever the policy is where you are, there's no evidence to support the use of that to improve safety for women and babies. 
So, and that's a Cochrane database, Cochrane Systematic Review, and it's there was one written in 2013 and it's been recently updated in 2020. And I'm going to put that obviously in the research resource folder for anybody who's on the mailing list. So you can absolutely say no to a vaginal exam. You can decline those. You might want to first get information. So why do you need to do this vaginal exam? You could ask a question like, have you got concerns for me or my baby? And if they say, well, no, but if we don't check, we don't know where you're up to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What they're saying is we are out of our comfort zone not knowing where you're up to in labour and we would really like to know what your cervix is doing so that our fears can be relieved. I think when it comes to consent, something that I teach people is I mean, first of all, we've got to understand why a procedure is being done. And what Mel and I have just presented you with is the highest form of evidence we have called a systematic review, systematic review of all the evidence. And that says there is no benefit to routine vaginal examinations. So really, we've got to understand why they're being done. And it's a bed management issue. That's vaginal examinations routinely. uh, It's about managing space in hospitals which is a big problem, but it's not your problem in labor and it's not your vagina's problem. This is why progress in labor is such a system-based issue. There, There is a situation where you could be in a situation of what we call labor dystocia. That's going to be our topic for next week. We're going to talk about labor dystocia and labor stages and slow labor, but you're not in explicit danger by having a slow labor, except you are in danger of being interfered with if your labor's slow. Because as B is saying, if you have a vaginal exam and then four hours later, you have another, another vaginal exam and your cervix is still the same dilation as it was in the first exam, you're going to be offered a lot of intervention to try and speed your labor up. And the whole intention of that is to move the process of labor along to get you to fully dilated so that you can push your baby out so they can shuffle you into the next hospital. And this is where, you know, when we look at progress of labor, um, and it's a really tricky one, right? Because we're all different. We're all going to labor differently. Every labor and birth we have is going to be different. So we are really got to understand here, why is not progressing a problem? problem Mm, and and whose problem is it because here's the thing if you're well and your baby's well why does time matter Mm -hmm. why does the speed or the action of your cervix and you know mel said talking about Ina Gaskin, talking about the cervix as a sphincter and that we don't understand this space well. We don't un- we don't understand the cervix well. We don't understand the space well. There is so much of labor and birth that we still don't understand. Yet what we do know is what we're doing is not supported by evidence. So who is not progressing a problem for? So when you consent to a vaginal examination, you're consenting to an assessment of your progress, but for who and why. It is an intervention. It will disrupt you because if you go into a vaginal examination and you think, oh, I just want to be seven centimeters. If I'm seven centimeters, I'll be okay. And if I'm not seven centimeters, I won't be okay. And they say you're four centimeters. So many women in birth debriefs have told me how that has ruined them. And then they've gone completely out of the zone. And then to try and get back in the zone is incredibly hard because labor and birth is a mental game as much as it is a physical game. And if you're in that prefrontal cortex, rather than being in that limbic system, that middle ancient part of your brain, that needs to look after you in labor, then that can slow things down. And because it interrupts the oxytocin, it increases adrenaline. The body doesn't go, oh, you thought you were seven centimeters and you're only four. It's okay. Keep going. The brain goes, not safe. Stop producing oxytocin. Something's going on that is not safe for this baby to come. And so labor stalls. Having discussions with your care providers in pregnancy around vaginal examinations is really important. The only time Mel or I will do vaginal examinations is if the person asks for it because they would really like some more information for them. Sometimes when women want a vaginal examination in labor, it's because as you were saying, Mel, you know, you've had a woman who had two births before and then the third birth, it just didn't feel right for her. It felt different. So she wanted more information and more information can make her feel safer or enable her to make a decision that then leads to making her feel safer. The other time I would do vaginal examinations is when I'm like, what is going on here? I don't get it. 
I need a tiny little bit more information. Because here's the thing, a vaginal examination is not the be all and end all. In the hospital system, a vaginal examination tends to be the whole picture. It's what we base a lot of decisions on, what we find in that vaginal examination. Do we break the waters? Do we not? Do we start syntocin? And do we offer an epidural? Do we do a cesarean? For me, it's a tiny piece of the puzzle. And I will do it if the picture is not clear. Typically, when you're having a vaginal examination, they'll do it in between contractions. Some care providers may stay in there for the contraction. This is important to know because if you go in going, right, they're going to do it in between contractions and then they stay there and you're on your back trying to have a contraction on your back, that can feel really uncomfortable. So often when we know, when we have the information and we know the uncomfortable is coming up, then we're better prepared for it. It doesn't feel like, um, big or scary or traumatic because we're we're prepared for it. This is why it needs to be a full body yes because trauma isn't what happens to us. It's not the actual vaginal examination. It's what happens inside of us, what we internalize around it. And so a lot of women, when they have vaginal examinations, they'll feel powerless. They'll feel out of control. They'll feel vulnerable. Whereas if they know, okay, I'm going to have this, it's going to be more uncomfortable. And so having the All the information is really important around feeling safe during one. What do you need to feel more safe and relax into this? Now, in a hospital situation, if the cervix hasn't changed, then their answer is syntocinin. But often the labour needs or an epidural, right? Mm. Syntocinin or an epidural. And often that they're the two last things that the cervix needs. It's what the body needs to feel safe. And so looking at it holistically, right, does she actually need a rest? Because this is the thing we expect with progress of labor that that labor will be linear and it will start and continue to progress and go up. Often if the baby needs some space to get into a better position, we will see contractions slow down, space out, give that body more softness, more openness for that baby to move. Mel and I see this because we see physiological labor, but this isn't allowed, and I'm doing inverted speech marks here, in a system because this is a bed management issue. And also the system is very scared of long labors. We, you know, we're very scared of, well, something's going to go wrong. Something has to go wrong. If this keeps continuing, something has to go wrong. And so if I bring it back to when would you consent? to a vaginal examination, if they ask you that, you may say, if myself or my baby are unwell, Mm -hmm. right? Because that is a very good reason to have a vaginal examination. But just to have one to see where you're at, what does that tell us? Absolutely nothing. This comes back to the stages of labor and how they serve no purpose um, and how this is all about you getting in and out of that hospital. And Um, stages of labor are going to be episode 11, the next episode. We're going to- Yes, we'll talk about it. I remember caring for a woman once and a doctor and I having a very, very heated discussion He was telling me she wasn't in labor. I was telling him that she was. And this is the thing. As a midwife, there are so many things that tell me you're in labor. I do not have to put my fingers in your vagina to assess that. But I also want to say this comes with continuity of care. And experience in not doing vaginal exams. Yes, because if your whole experience as a midwife or a doctor is to do vaginal examinations and to know what to do next only based on the vaginal examination, then that is what you're good at. I am really good at not doing vaginal examinations. I am really good at at knowing physiological labor. And I'm good at that when I'm providing fragmented care, so when I don't know somebody, but I am much better at it when I know the person. Okay, so I was having this heated discussion with this doctor. It was a very intense argument about whether she was in labor or not. The woman was like, fine, I'll have a vaginal examination. I was like, fine, I'll do one. We were both pissed off about it. We were both coerced into doing it. I did a vaginal examination. She was seven centimeters. You happy? She's seven centimeters. She's in labor. Yes, I'm happy. She she can stay in the birth suite. Two contractions later, baby's on her chest. Mm -hmm. And this is where, when we do a vaginal examination, it is not a prediction. And this is where it become this is where vaginal examinations become unsafe because that is what we're expecting of them. We're expecting to be able to predict things, you know, so we can manage the labor. But if a person is well and her baby is well, why do we need to predict? Now, it's only for the system. So vaginal exams 
are system-centric, they benefit the system. They don't benefit women unless women have explicitly asked for it or there's an issue that we're trying to explore. As always, it's not about saying no to everything. It's about understanding why you're saying yes. Are you just saying yes because? Because why? And is that yes going to lead to more interventions? So what we're saying is, and this is true of any intervention, interventions are to stop things going wrong or if they're going wrong, trying to bring them back onto the right path. Interventions are not for routine use. So we're saying do not accept or as a practitioner, if you possibly can, do not do routine vaginal exams because they're not evidence-based and they don't make a difference. And if you're working in the system and that's what you're doing, challenge it. Start going to policy meetings. Start getting on the board that make policies and going, hey, let's look at the evidence around this. Because you hold the power. Everyone holds the power to have these conversations. We hold the power to change it. Because it is not our job to coerce you into something. It is our job to provide you with the information and then document what your decision is. Often our egos get in the way of this because when we offer you something that we want you to have and you say no, that doesn't feel good for us, right? And that's where the coercive care can come in because it's like you haven't been a good girl, you haven't said what I wanted you to say, so now the coercive language around, well, you and your baby might die if I don't do one or you're going to need a cesarean if I don't do one. And if we also think about that, so if one in ten women are uh, the victims of obstetric violence, the percentage of women who've experienced uh, sexual violence outside of pregnancy is even higher. And so as practitioners, I think we should approach vaginal examinations on the assumption that that woman in her past somewhere has been sexually assaulted. And if we are always coming to the vaginal examination process assuming that this woman has been somehow sexually traumatized through sexual violence, then we are going to be much more gentle and empathetic and careful around the process of asking to put our fingers in someone's vagina. You know, for women who have experienced sexual trauma or sexual violence, the process of a vaginal exam can create symptoms of flashbacks and revisiting that. If us as practitioners Let's just assume that every woman has had it has been the victim of sexual violence and then you will always be looking after the women who have, but then you'll be extra, extra careful with the women who haven't. I just think as a culture we need to bring back respect mm. for the pelvis, for the pelvic bowl, for our vulvas, for our reproductive system. Really, I think if we just think of it as a sacred space, It's an incredibly sacred space that holds a lot of our story as a culture. If we really brought respect back to this incredibly sacred space, and if you think about it, it holds so much story. Yes, Mm -hmm. sexual abuse is some story that it holds, but there is always story that it's been held held for us. Our first sexual relationships, um, our first pap smears, our first periods, intimate relationships, invasive procedures, infertility, contraception, pregnancy. There is so much sacred story that is held in that space. And regardless of whether a person's been sexually abused or not, that space is is sacred. It needs to be respected. It needs to be honoured. You know, before I do a vaginal examination, I will talk a person through it. Is it okay if I place my hands on your labia? Then what I'm going to do is part your labia and then I'm going to place one finger and then if it's okay with you, another. Like a vaginal examination takes a lot of time with me because Mm. I honour that space. I don't just go boom, boom, like in and out, which I've seen many people do. I, you know, I've seen some people do vaginal examinations that have been women and just been like, do you own a vagina? Do you own one? And what do you do with yours? if Mm. that's what you've just done to somebody else's. So let's just honour the pelvic bowl as a sacred space and actually recognise and take into consideration that we are entering a person's body. That doesn't belong to you. It belongs to them. And so you need adequate permission 
Only do what you've explicitly told them you're going to do. Do not add any other intervention. It's a medical intervention. There's a baby in there too, right? So let's just honour the space. I mean, the thing here is it's your body, it's your baby, it's your choice. It's always your choice. And having these conversations with your doula, with your care provider, like get a doula. If if you haven't got that yet, if you've gotten to this many episodes of listening to us and you haven't realised that you need to have a doula if you're birthing in, in a public system, like have people that know the game and that can actually help you to advocate, but know know what you're willing and not willing to have. Take this opportunity to also plug. I have specific, I had so many inquiries from women wanting me to be with them during a hospital birth because they were frightened of not being able to advocate for themselves during labour. So I created this online course and it has 10, what I call 10 power strategies in there to help women be able to confidently say no to things and how do you strategically play this game? Because you are, you're playing a game. There is an internal battle going on in hospital. They want you to do things that you might not want to do. So you need to have insider knowledge about how to stand up under that coercion. That The only reason I created that was that I wanted to duplicate myself and the, the lessons that I've learned to being in the system of how to navigate it and stand up under it. So can I If you're concerned about this kind of stuff and you're not sure how you're going to advocate for yourself, you can't find or can't afford a doula, Transformative Birth Work is the course and it's on my website and it's got the strategies in there to help you stand up under this if you absolutely feel like you need extra support to do it and you haven't got access any other way. So if we can summarize B then. So vaginal examination is done sometimes during pregnancy, which by the way, if they're doing it, Oh, I don't know if we should go down that rabbit hole yet. We haven't really talked about yet why one would be done in pregnancy. So people may be offered one in pregnancy and this is generally around talk of induction or do a stretch and sweep at the same time. So just remember, if you are a well person with a well baby, there is no indication for one. The only reason where there may be a benefit is to have one to um, see what type of induction may be best suitable for you. And that is because you've consented to an induction for a medical reason and that is going to help distinguish or determine what mode of induction is necessary. So otherwise, if one is offered to you in pregnancy, there is no evidence to say that they should be routinely done in pregnancy or offered. And if it's a stretch and sweep, a stretch and sweep, we'll do a whole, we can do a um, another do a episode on that. But basically a stretch and sweep should only be done if you've got a medical induction booked and you're trying to avoid it. And the later you are in pregnancy, the better for that. So I'm, you know, to have stretch and sweeps just for the sake of it at 38 weeks is not beneficial and not routine, uh, not evidence-based. Really no, there's no evidence for vaginal examinations during pregnancy unless you're about to undergo the process of being induced. And so if your practitioner is suggesting them at any point in your pregnancy and you're well and healthy and there's no reason for that, then it's fine to decline. There is no evidence for routine vaginal examinations in pregnancy or labour. There is no evidence for their benefit. It is totally your choice if you want one or not. It is also your choice if you have, if you're willing to have the information relayed back to you or not. And it is also your choice what happens after that vaginal examination. We will talk about progress of labour in the next episode. Do Mel's course if you need more information around how to say no. Have a birth prep chat with me if you want to and tapping into your badass wise woman that is able to go with a full body yes or no Mm. and as you were saying before b vaginal exams are not predictive they've told you where you've come from they can't tell you where you're going so to make decisions based solely on cervical dilation is also not evidence-based and that's the cochrane database the cochrane review that i'll put up in the mailing list has specifically said that decisions shouldn't be made based on cervical dilation or how long the labor is going. It should always be made on how well the woman and the baby is. So this is just an assessment tool that we can use to help make decisions, clinical decisions, not used routinely. And we will talk in the next episode about other ways of determining progress, things like the purple line, the change in women's behavior, 
changing positions and all that kind of thing. But to summarise what we've been talking about today is that they have no place in routine pregnancy and birth care for women and babies who are well and healthy. Vaginal examinations are a medical procedure that can be used to gain information to help make decisions based on how well or unwell the women and baby, woman and baby might be. So the process of doing them four or two hourly is not evidence-based. And the research around vaginal examination shows us that it doesn't improve health and well-being or outcomes for women and babies if they're done routinely. So the other thing we need to mention is that this linear progression of your cervix and needing to be 10 centimetres dilated in order to have a baby, this 10 centimetres is a complete and total fast. Did you know that, B? You don't have to be 10 centimetres to push a baby out of your cervix. I totally knew that. You just, yeah. your baby just has to come out. Like, oh, has to we'll kick through the that. hole. Yeah. I mean, there's not much more information, but a baby with a bigger head will stretch the cervix bigger and preterm babies or babies with smaller heads will slip through a cervix that's not 10 centimetres. So the other reason, oh, this is the other reason why people do it, is to diagnose fully dilated, to tell the woman when it's time to push. So we haven't even covered that. Yeah. That is a whole episode on its own. But this is, I mean, the stages of labour are the wor- one of the worst things we've done to labour and birth. They serve no purpose at all. And when I look at it from a core and pelvic floor health perspective, it is the worst, things that, worst thing that we do to in birth for pelvic floors um, because yeah we'll do a whole episode on just on pushing but yeah the whole 10 centimeter thing is something that we've just made up well that's another reason to decline a vaginal exam if they've said you can't push until we do a vaginal exam to work out if you're fully dilated you are well and truly welcome to decline that option because at home if a woman starts pushing i make the assumption that she is ready to push her baby out. Occasionally, women can get an urge to push without being fully dilated, but that becomes pretty obvious over time. So if a woman has started with the urge to push and is has been doing that for a while, I start to think, ah, the baby probably should have come down by now, but do you know who's also been thinking that for some time? It's the woman. And usually... If I say something like, how are you feeling? Do you feel like things are happening? And often they'll turn around and go, no, I feel stuck. Something's not right. I don't know what's going on. Can you check me? And so there's no need to just check someone because you're wondering if they're fully dilated and ready to push their baby out. These things are discovered as we go, but that is not valued in a hospital So I no longer tell people to push with the urge, right? So we can do a whole episode on this, but the urge to push is not the time to push. The urge to push is like the urge to poo or the urge to vomit. It's like nausea. We feel like we need to do something, but we're not actually doing something yet. The urge to push is our body signaling that it's going to be pushing a baby out soon. The Fetal ejection reflex is the time to push and the body will do that on its own. And I think in midwifery we've made a very big mistake and equating the urge to push is the time to push because it's not actually often the time to push. And so for those babies... If they're left, if they're not told to push. So if a woman's making urge sounds and she just goes with it, I don't coach them to do anything at that point. But it's it's not often say keep breathing. Don't push, keep breathing. Because oh, that urge is really, yeah, I will only because the pelvic floor, what happens is that urge can be really full on and you can want to do something with it. And so you actively push with it as opposed to letting the body passively push. So this is something I talk a lot to people about in pregnancy when they're in my care, but this is this is the reason why it's trying to get you through that urge to push. So the fetal ejection reflex happens and the fetal ejection reflex is almost like a unicorn in maternity care. It is the body's inbuilt pushing system, but it is hardly 
ever seen anymore. So we will we will dive into that into later. That. But basically what happens is with vaginal examinations, especially if you, you're accepting routine vaginal examinations, the chances are you will be diagnosed as being able to push, even if you haven't felt the urge or your baby is anywhere near your clitoris and pelvic floor, which it needs to be for the fetal ejection reflex to be stimulated. Because we have a big fear around that cervix being open and not a baby coming out, which makes no sense at all. So the argument will be that it's not good for you or your baby to be fully dilated for so long. And that is, I mean, Mel's got her own personal experience yeah. and that that is, we really, that is my life long passion and goal is to break that down and get that out of the system because what happens is is the damage so we are scared that if you are fully dilated for too long you are going to sustain damage only you will in your pelvic floor and your body sustain damage if you are coach pushing for that whole time right because you are straining you are forcing your baby will get fetal distress and you're at a higher chance of having episiotomy that is what australian research shows us around coach pushing the reality is if we don't know that and you and your baby are well we haven't put our fingers inside your vagina and seen that it's fully dilated and we leave you then you and you and your baby are well then there is no harm because we're not straining or forcing you are just continuing to labor you are well the baby as well the baby moves through the pelvis there is a reason why it hasn't yet and often Often that is positional. And so forcing and straining constricts the space, less space, less ability for that baby to move. Then we get fetal distress, then we get intervention. So the people are like, oh, well, if you don't push a baby out, you're at a higher chance of intervention. But that's because what we've the evidence we've looked at around that is around people straining and forcing their babies out. And you just have to look at culturally at the media and movies around how babies are born. All we have grown up seeing is babies being forced and strained out. So women's eyes popping out of their heads, squeezing hands, holding their breath, going red in the face. That is not actually physiological birth. That is not the way we're designed to birth. We're actually designed to just let our uterus do the pushing and we breathe through it. But that has been totally just messed up in what we have viewed mostly in movies Mm. so shows like one born every minute show that but that's because the system has created that pushing stage so we have invented a pushing stage that isn't actually physiological and the reason we have done that is because of vaginal examinations so knowing that and knowing to decline vaginal examinations is so to in order to decrease intervention really that is what mel and i are saying routine vaginal examinations on a well woman is not they're not beneficial they're not evidence-based if you have them you're at more in risk risk of further interventions and being fully dilated is no reason to start pushing and we're going to do a whole thing on coach versus physiological exit the other yeah the other thing i we haven't touched on that i think is really important to here is induction Vaginal examinations will be routinely done in induction. And the reason they are doing that is to assess if the induction is working, right? The whole episode, I reckon we need to do induction the whole other because it's it's a whole different beast, I reckon. Because if you're interfering with if you're already interfering with the body, it's your responsibility to keep interfering. Yes. So you may be willing to have routine vaginal examinations for an induction, but not a physiological birth. Mm, that's what that's what I'm saying. Routine interventions in physiological birth for women who are well have no place. But if if there's already routine interventions and medical management and and the whole process is already being controlled and managed externally by the practitioner, then it's the practitioner's responsibility to keep track of that intervention and management and make sure that what they're doing isn't creating danger. And one thing with an induction is is you've introduced an intervention that can be dangerous and now you've got to manage it effectively and part of that is vaginal exams. Yes. So Mm -hmm. can we just, can we, I think a lot of people listening to this will be applying this information to inductions as well. we're not talking about that today that's we've talked about everything we've talked about has been physiological birth in the sense of you're going to labor on your own and you're laboring on your own without syntocin and drip 
We will talk about vaginal examinations in induction at another time, but I think we really need to include this bit because I think people will just, I think you can take it thinking that we're talking about that and we're not. No, and the same with epidurals. If you've got an epidural, then the physiological process has been interrupted. So we need to keep interrupting it to keep it on track because you can't expect it to work in a physiological way when you've already interrupted it. So, And so what we're talking about is routine, regular vaginal exams during spontaneous normal labour. For people who are like, I'm having an induction, well, you part of an induction is vaginal exams. And if you've had an epidural, part of an epidural is is a catheter, is fluids, is pain relief, the actual epidural itself, and vaginal exams. It's a whole package of intervention. It's not just one intervention. And, and so, yeah, we need to clarify that. Yeah. You know, there are ways of, and we, you know, we haven't talked about that, but we will, there are ways of assessing how labour is progressing, but it is different with an induction. We're not mm-hmm. talking about physiological at all. And then with an epidural, you know, we want to make sure that, it, and often the side effect of an epidural is that if, especially if you're having an epidural with physiological labour, is that the physiological labour will stall or stop. And in which case then your labour needs to be what we call augmented with syntocinin. And so then um, vaginal examinations again become a part of it. And so what we're doing is actively managing your labour now, and that is, a, that is a part of that. Totally. So the next episode is going to be all about labour stages or lack thereof because Rachel Reed has done a whole, her whole thesis was on the abolishment of stages of labour. This episode has been about vaginal examinations during pregnancy and birth and... Well, women and babies, well, birthing people and babies. Well, people and babies. And there's no place for intervention unless something is going wrong or we're trying to work out if something's going wrong. So... Is that the end? Yeah, we'll see you in the next episode. And I'm going to take this opportunity to let you all know about the Launch Yourself into Private Practice Midwifery Mentorship. This is something that I do every October and I have done for the last two years. This is the third year that it's running. So if you are a midwife and you want to move from working in a hospital setting to being in private practice, but it all feels too big, too hard, too complicated, and you don't know where to start, this mentorship was developed to help midwives go from working in hospital to working in a home setting as a privately practicing midwife, you can do a range of things within that. You don't have to go to births. You don't even have to do home births. You can be a private midwife along a huge scope of practice. And I've created a mentorship that goes for an entire year and it's supported by me. There's online content, there's community networking, there's Zoom Zoom sessions, and there's unlimited email access to me. The mentorship opens only in October and only for one week. And then I close down enrollments and you have to wait again till next year if you want to join. I'm just letting you know that the launch for this is now October. It's opening. I'm sending out information via email. There's a mailing list. If you want to get on that mailing list, the mentorship mailing list to get information about this mentorship go to www.melaniethemidwife.com and there's a button on the website that asks for more information about the Launch Yourself into Private Practice Midwifery Mentorship. Click that button, you will be on the mailing list and you'll get all the information you need about the mentorship and how to join and when enrollments open. Hopefully I will see you in the mentorship and the rebellion can continue. See you later. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs>